MSW Media. News was wearing. Daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello. And welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. Today, the Supreme Court bench slaps Trump in his effort to block certification of the Pennsylvania election results. Judge Sullivan dismisses the Flynn case as moot following the pardon of Flynn by Trump. Jenna Ellis has tested positive for the coronavirus. Trump called the Pennsylvania speaker to pressure him to overturn the election results. Biden is said to be nominating General Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense. And Doug Jones is now the top contender for Attorney General. Chris Krebs is suing the Trump campaign. And armed Mexicans were smuggled in to guard the border wall, according to whistleblowers. Oh, and Ron Johnson spreads COVID conspiracy theories. I'm your host, A.G. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana, how was your Tuesday, but Wednesday for everyone listening? Oh, it's it's fine. I was telling you before we popped on recording. I just, I, I, I can't stop fighting with people on Twitter. And I really want to, like, I know it's good for my blood pressure not to engage, but like every once in a while, and I'm not going to specific out the group, but every once in a while I'll post something in like part of a community I I belong to all of a sudden turns on me because they either didn't get the sarcasm or, and I'm just like, Oh, I don't have time for this one. Like, if you know anything about me, you know that I punch up. Like I just can't even deal with this right now. Uh, so other than that, I'm fine. I just really wanted to open a bottle of wine at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> that sounds fantastic, honestly. Um, because, you know, I thought once Biden was elected, the news would slow down. We could make the <laughs> yeah, podcast, right. keep it under an hour, you know. No. 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 Uh, but today we've got some incredible guests. I'm going to be talking to Krista Paravani. She's an author and she's written an incredible book about choice, a woman's right to choose. And we're going to talk to her. And then I got to speak to Eliza Orleans. She's a, the candidate, pro- very cool progressive candidate for the Manhattan District Attorney. Yes. Um, yeah. And she's incredible. And she's got some amazing ideas. And I, th- I think everyone's going to be excited to hear about what she has to say. And then, of course, you and I will do the good news, um, a little piece of good news up front here, a couple pieces before we get into the hot notes. Uh, Rep. Marsha Fudge has, is the pick for HUD secretary, so another woman of color in a cabinet position. This is awesome. And uh, let's see, the SCOTUS decision is out, the Supreme Court, uh, and it's over. I mean, this pretty much dashes uh, Trump's election bullshittery. Well, not to mention, like, his entire legal team now has COVID, so I don't think they're (laughs) going to be in court arguing anything anytime soon. Yeah, that doesn't help. Uh, But anyway, Tuesday, they denied, the SCOTUS denied a request from Pennsylvania Republicans to block certification of the Commonwealth's election results, delivering a pretty much a fatal blow to the GOP's long shot bid to invalidate President-elect Joe Biden's victory. Supreme Court's action is a crushing loss for Trump who suggested as late as Tuesday he thought the justices, including three of his nominees, would step in and take his side and flip the election. And he, you know, as he's continually and falsely suggested, there was massive voter fraud during the election. But they're like, nope. Nope. They issued a one-line order, denied, uh, with no noted dissent. I wonder if he's, and he probably isn't going to catch on that he's, was so being used. Like, it's it's clear over and over and over. Mitch McConnell 
used him. He was the, the, the useful idiot. That's that's all he was to a lot of this party. Mm-hmm. And the mandate of this election is, is clear. And now the mandate of SCOTUS is clear. Now, this was a, a dismissal of, a, of an injunction. Um, not even a dismissal, just a we refuse to hear um, your arguments for an injunction. So this wasn't a writ of uh, certiorari. This was, this, and so now Trump supporters are like, yeah, but they haven't they haven't said anything about the merits of the case. And it's like, oh my god, Pam, stop. Oh, good lord. Uh, no offense to Pam's who listen to the show. Well, we do have a lot of uh, news to get to, so let's do it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, for the lead story today. In a complaint unsealed on Friday, whistleblowers working on President Trump's border wall said the contractors were illegally smuggling in Mexican guards to protect the construction sites. Two whistleblowers have accused contractors building President Trump's border wall of smuggling armed Mexican security teams into the United States to guard construction sites, even building an illegal dirt road to speed up the operation. This is according to court documents unsealed by a federal judge on Friday. The two employees, who were both contractors to provide security at the sites, accused the company Sullivan Land Services Co., or SLS, as well as the subcontractor, Ultimate Concrete of El Paso, of hiring workers, <laughs> it's extreme concrete, of hiring workers who were not vetted by the United States government, overcharging for construction costs, and making false statements about those actions. Now, while the smuggling of the Mexican guards is just on its face an incredible uh, accusation from these whistleblowers, Overcharging for construction costs is also in here. It's kind of the buried lead. The whistleblower said Ultimate Concrete went so far as to build that dirt road to expedite illegal border crossings into sites in San Diego using construction vehicles to block security cameras. An unnamed supervisor at the Army Corps of Engineers approved this operation. And that's according to the complaint filed in February that was just released on Friday. The whistleblowers also said in the complaint that Ultimate Concrete... Uh, and their employees had submitted fraudulent invoices to the federal government. One of the whistleblowers was told by an employee that a member of the company's leadership, identified in the complaint as UC president, ultimate concrete president, sounds like a wrestler, um, <laughs> was, quote, hiding the full extent of his profits on the border wall project, in part by submitting false claims for diesel fuel, according to the complaint. Basically, they were running forklifts for like two minutes at a time, saying they were running them all day, stuff like that. Right. I would be really interested to uh, see if there's any ties with the the Donald Trump camp, you know, company, him, everyone close to him with this ultimate concrete uh, company. I'm wondering what, if there were any kickbacks there. A hundred percent. I bet Ultimate Concrete installed the tennis pavilion, which was, by the way, also contracted by some uh, Israeli construction companies. So that's probably just one large, like, for sure, bug. They probably like you have to tear that out. It's probably filled with listening devices. But uh, it, it's you know, concrete is generally a pretty mobbed up organization. Yeah. Uh, and and that's you know, Trump dealt with that a lot in New York. Uh, as a well, he wasn't really a builder. He just slapped his name on buildings. But, you know, he, he, he <laughs> some people some people actually think, Dana, that the reason he was never arrested up until this point is because he was a confidential informant. <laughs> I, I know, which is absolutely hilarious that they think he would keep his mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you never know. Maybe that's how he avoided prison. You know, I mean, it could be. But I also think it's, it's sort of funny that they hired a legal um Mexican guards to protect the construction sites of the border wall. I mean, I could protect 25 feet of wall. 
that I mm. like how much did you pay these guys? Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how much new wall was built. Yeah, and no matter no matter what, they sure couldn't stop it from blowing over in a strong gust of wind. That was so. beautiful. That was really beautiful. I was like, oh goodness. All right. Maybe you should spray on the wall whatever you spray on Donald's hair because it seems to actually hold up better in the wind. All right. Um, this one's coming from Ron Johnson, this news story, the Wisconsin Republican who introduced the debunked Russian intelligence into the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee has now embraced the role of the Senate's leading COVID contrarian. So this has set off something like a quiet mutiny on the panel, enraging Democrats who plan to essentially boycott the traditional cross-examination of witnesses and unsettling some Republicans who are planning to skip Tuesday's session Yes, lest their presence be seen as lending credence to this proceeding. Like Johnson, I'm going to call him Johnson because he's a dick. But um, this is, it, it, this is nuts. Yeah, he's invited like a, a anti-vaxxer and, a, you know, maybe not the pillow guy, but maybe the OxyClean guy. No, wait, he passed away. It, like, it's just a panel, like his, his uh, the people who are going to be testifying, quote unquote, in this hearing, quote unquote, are just mm-hmm. a, a group of unsciency folks and <laughs> democrats and republicans are like ooh, nah all of them are like we're gonna we're gonna call out that day uh-huh it's not good it's it looks really bad and of course you know russia ron johnson is yes you know again just and that's doing putin's bidding that's potential pardon that's potential pardon guy right there mm. I, I could see him actually getting a pardon from trump because you know he's in a lot of trouble with the russia the russia stuff yeah i think so too um, and here's some, some, somebody else who's in a lot of trouble and, you know, he's probably going to pardon himself, but Trump <laughs> called the speaker of the Pennsylvania house of representatives twice during the past week to make an extraordinary request for help to reverse his loss in the state of Pennsylvania. This is reflecting a broadening pressure campaign by the president and his allies to try to subvert the 2020 election. Uh, the calls confirmed by house speaker, Brian Cutler's office made Pens- the, the guy who he called, he was like, yeah, that happened. Um, they make Pennsylvania the third state where Trump has tried to overturn the results since he lost the election. Uh, he previously reached out to Republicans in Michigan, and on Saturday he pressured Brian Kemp again to, to try to replace that state's electors. One official involved in the campaign said Trump spends almost all of his days obsessing over voter fraud and searching for ways to reverse his defeat. He has asked Giuliani and one of his campaign lawyers, Jenna Ellis, for more names of lawmakers that he could be calling. Uh, they say, quote, he's going to keep doing this until the 14th at least. That's when they vote. That's when oh the electors goodness, vote. right. And that's one uh, that that quote came from one Republican involved in the operation. And he said the president sees no advantage to stopping this. And that is the key point. That's the key point right there that he sees no. Why should he stop? Nobody's impeaching him. Nobody's throwing the handcuffs on him. He just yeah. keeps breaking these laws. And these are state bri- these could be state bribery laws. They could they they run afoul of election laws. Um, uh, but he doesn't. There's he he has no incentive or you know he's not disincentivized to do this. And that is why people are like, why do you want to impeach him twice? Because of shit like this. But of course, his first impeachment didn't really do much either. So there's that. And uh, the former top U.S. cybersecurity official responsible for securing November's presidential election. Krebs has sued the Trump campaign and one of its lawyers, that's DeGeneva, on Tuesday for defamation, asserting they conspired to falsely claim the election was stolen, attacking dissenting Republicans, and fraudulently reaping political donations. Krebs singles out Joe DeGeneva, who said Krebs should be drawn and quartered and shot at dawn. 
And he also calls, Jajenov also called Krebs an idiot and a moron, which led to a bunch of threats on social media. And this is so sad. At one point, Krebs' 10-year-old asked, Daddy's going to oh be God. executed? That's, that's, that kills me. And one of Krebs' attorneys said to another, quote, part of the conspiracy uh, alleged is trying to hawk false evidence to courts, and part of it is to fraudulently raise money. And Walden said this of the suit's allegations. We intend to seek discovery to learn the full scope of the conspiracy and we'll amend our suit depending on where the evidence takes us. Now, Trump's political operation has been raising funds. You talked about this the other day around the election results, bringing it to more than $200 million since Election Day. Oh, my God. And what? how much of that's actually gone to fighting the election? Not much. The rest is going in another pack that he set up that's going to go into his own pocket. I can't believe they just don't see that they're getting swindled over and over and over. It's really, really sad. Uh, all right. This next story actually is coming from Jake Tapper. Uh, according to Jake, Biden called former CENTCOM commander, retired General Lloyd Austin, um, over the weekend and offered him the position of Secretary of Defense. So this does not come without a little bit of drama. I'll just let you know that because uh, I'll tell you why. According to a source, Austin accepted. If confirmed, Austin would be the first black secretary of defense. But some Dems are taking issue with the selection because he's not he's uh, he's not been retired for more than seven years and would require a congressional waiver. And but this isn't new. I mean, this is what they had to do for Mattis uh, when Trump non- nominated him for secretary of defense. But it seems that um, many of the Dems have said they would never support a waiver because of the importance of having civilian leadership of the military. So Blumenthal opposed a waiver as well. Uh, Slotkin says he we shouldn't be appointing anyone that requires a waiver. Uh, Biden wrote a detailed defense, though, of his selection, saying because Austin works well under pressure. Um, he's clearly qualified, mm-hmm. but, you know, if they're going to... I don't know if they're holding, you know, everyone else to the same standard with this waiver, but it'll be interesting to see if this pushback actually affects this at all. Mm. Um, Biden clearly wants him in that position. Um, Additionally, and this one I find interesting, uh, to be honest with you, AG, wouldn't be my first choice and probably wouldn't be my second choice, but it looks like they're looking at Doug Jones now. Mm. He's the top contender for attorney general. Um, I I like Doug Jones a lot. I think he would have made a a great senator for the second time for the state of Alabama. But um, I find this one a little bit uh, interesting is is all I can really say. Yeah, I'm... I'm a Sally Yates fan, but Doug Jones was my number two pick. Um, oh, okay. And here's why. He he took on Tell and me. won uh, the uh, white nationalism, the KKK, and That's white fair. nationalist terrorist groups. And right now, domestic terrorism, terrorism from white nationalists is gripping this country. And uh, he's he's kind of a bulldog. He's not shy. He doesn't back down from from prosecuting criminals. Uh, he's he's he goes on offense. And I, I think that he would, he would be an, an excellent choice. And later on the show, I talked to Eliza Orleans. She agrees. In fact, he was her number one, uh, pick. She said she had issues with, um, she had issues with Sally Yates because of the conflict. She's actually a, she's actually a fact witness if, if Trump were to be prosecuted for obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, you know, it could be a kind of politically, combative but anyone that that uh that biden selects is going to be and that is why the january 5th runoffs in georgia are so critical so that we can't be blocked on these nominations uh and i don't know how i feel about 
the waiver. Um, a lot of Dems don't like it. Um, but I mean, uh, it's, he, I think he's an excellent choice, but then again, he's got a long history with Biden and it could seem like favoritism of his friend, but I, you know, I think it's also very important to have a black secretary of defense, uh, because I mean, Agreed. 19% of our force, uh, is black and, yeah, and you know, the department of justice in the Pentagon usually leads the way in, in that kind of, you know, in being progressive, uh, as far as, as far as that, that's concerned. And with, with climate science, with LGBTQ plus, and, you know, uh, with communities of color, it's only really been the executive branch that's had the problem with it, with don't ask, don't tell and all that other, uh, all that other stuff. Even Mad Dog Mattis, who I worked with on, on putting together a health program for transgender people serving out in the military, um, was like, I'm not listening to this tweet. Um, we're moving forward with this. Uh, he did several studies showing that it doesn't impact morale at all. And so I think having diversity at the top of the Pentagon is crucial because uh, of the diversity of the actual armed forces. But well said. Yeah. But then, you know, but then again, it, it I mean, he's he's brilliant. CENTCOM uh, retired. He's been retired for four years. Mattis was retired for four years. He It would take a waiver. But I also think on, on the opposite hand, it's very important that we have civilian leadership of the Department of Defense. Uh, and it acts kind of as a check. But, you know, I'm I, I I'm not going to get all up in arms about this one. No pun intended. Um, and finally, Judge <laughs> Sullivan approved a, a cadre of amicus briefs uh, yesterday in his consideration of the motion to dismiss the Flynn case. He was considering um, with that pardon. and But today, he officially dismissed the case as moot because of the pardon Flynn received from Trump. Upon careful consideration of the motions, the applicable law, the entire record herein, and for the reasons explained below, the court denies as moot the government's motion to dismiss pursuant to Rule 48, and grants the government's con- consent motion based on the presidential pardon to dismiss as moot. So this is an important distinction. Not only did he dismiss the case, he dismissed the Department of Justice's motion to dismiss the case, but he, you know, as moot because of the pardon. And he, he right. uh, it's a pretty long, um, you know, we were saying we expect to hear from him about this case. And he admits the decision in the decision that Flynn could have been charged with FARA violations for lying about his lobbying work with Turkey, but it was not part of uh, his as part of his plea agreement, I should say. But he, he he's very clear here. Sullivan says, quote, a pardon does not necessarily render innocent a defendant of any alleged violation of the law. Indeed, the Supreme Court has recognized that the acceptance of a pardon implies a confession of guilt. Furthermore, right. A pardon cannot erase a judgment of a conviction or its underlying legal and factual findings. So he's basically saying, you know, this is a fucking criminal. I'm dismissing it because of the pardon. And I recognize the pardon, but then fettered pardon power of the president. Right. He says the scope of the pardon is extraordinarily broad. It applies not only to the false statements offense, to which Mr. Flynn twice pled guilty in this case, but also purports to apply to any and all possible offenses that he might be charged with in the future in relation to this case and special counsel Mueller's investigation. Uh, however, he says, the court need only consider the pardon insofar as it applies to the offense to which Mr. Flynn twi- twice pled guilty in this case. He keeps making sure to tell everybody <laughs> that Flynn <laughs> said he was guilty. Flynn he said he was guilty. Twice pled. 
And it's a very interesting decision. You should check it out. There's a lot. There's a ton of threads on Twitter going over uh, the the some of the more important uh, top line quotes. But it's he we as expected. But I said it could be considered. He did consider it, and he is dismissing as moot just this particular case, leaving the door open for other people to bring other cases in the future if they would like to challenge the pardon. So, and I hope that they do. As do I, Doug Jones. And thank you, by the way, for the, the uh, yes, the soft uh, correction support of Doug Jones. It's, you know, I, I, I don't always have, I haven't always done the same research on like some of the candidates as you have. You're obviously much more versed in this. So it's much easier to get a correction or support from you than it is to have someone write in and be like, Doug Jones is kind of a badass, Dana. You might want to look it up. And like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Thanks. So please no, please no strongly worded corrections. I, I acquiesce to Allison Gill on this one. Thank you. Uh, all right. We are going to be right back. We're going to be talking with Eliza Orland. She's candidate for the June 2021 election for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. She's awesome. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Plush Care. We're living in a pretty weird and uncertain time. And more than ever, you shouldn't put off seeing a doctor when you're not feeling well. We have to keep our immune system up. And I know that with everything going on, it can be difficult to put your health first. But that's why I use Plush Care. See, Plush Care provides primary and urgent health care through virtual appointments. And scheduling an appointment, even for the same day, is really easy. I just pick a slot that works and a couple of clicks and I'm booked. So don't waste time on hold and don't go into a crowded waiting room. And with Plush Care and my membership, I can see my doctor from the comfort of my own home, even in my jammies. And with Plush Care, I can get diagnosed, treated, and have a prescription sent to my local pharmacy if needed within minutes. And if I have any questions before or after my visit, I could send unlimited messages to my care team anytime. And Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers, and it's available in all 50 states. And with how difficult things are, if you're feeling anxious, depressed, or stressed about what's going on in the world, Plush Care doctors are here to help by discussing treatment options and providing prescriptions as needed. I can tell you personally, my Plush Care experience has been a breeze. It's super user friendly. Signing up was easy. It just takes a minute. It's easy to schedule an appointment. The whole process has been convenient. I was immediately comfortable with my doctor too, because all plush care doctors graduated from one of the top 50 medical schools in the country, and they're all highly rated by their patients. So I have peace of mind that I'm getting the highest quality care. Plush care makes it easy for me to get the excellent care I need when I need it. And with plush care, I don't put off seeing a doctor and neither should you. No more excuses. Make your appointment today and go to plushcare.com slash daily beans. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E.com slash daily beans. Plushcare.com slash daily beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Eliza Orleans is a candidate for the Manhattan District Attorney, public defender, and outspoken advocate for New York City's most vulnerable populations. For more than a decade, she has fought courtroom battles representing over 3,000 New Yorkers who otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford a lawyer. And in March, Eliza announced her candidacy for Manhattan District Attorney, running on a platform designed to decriminalize poverty, end mass incarceration, and take on the inequities in our system and transform criminal justice in New York, make, make the city safer for everyone. Eliza, welcome to the Daily Beans. Thank you so much for having me. This is so, it's so wonderful to speak to you. Um, it's an honor. And I'd, I'd first, what I want to ask you about is your incredible platform, some of the things that you're focusing on in this election. Well, this is such an important election. I mean, I think there are so many people who are starting to recognize that electing DAs who are decarceral rather than who perpetuate mass incarceration is so critical. So I'm honored to be running and I'm the only public defender running for Manhattan District Attorney. And I've spent over a decade 
representing over thousands, over 3,000 individuals charged with crimes and going up against the Manhattan DA's office. And so I've seen the way in which our system, our criminal legal system is rigged uh, in favor of the wealthy, well-connected and powerful and against everyone else. And so I want to make real meaningful changes and fight for truly transformative change, which means ending cash bail, decriminalizing poverty, getting people the treatment that they need for mental health issues or substance use disorder, um, you know, addressing people's underlying issues and thinking about things other than just the default of incarceration for every issue that we have in society. Mm. I think one of the most frustrating things for for us as citizens and, and the folks who listen to this podcast is when we see somebody who maybe stole a backpack uh, end up in, in prison for four years versus Paul Manafort, who, uh, you know, was sentenced to three or four years for his decades of, of criminality and, and seditious behavior. And, and yes, he was convicted of tax fraud. But these, you know, you, you really focus on balancing justice the way that it should be balanced so that we don't have two criminal justice systems that, you know, that apply differently to different groups of people. Right. I mean, am I am I on the right track there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think so many people will say the phrase, oh, our criminal justice system is broken. But to them, I say it's not. The system is working exactly as it's designed to work. And in that, it's protecting the wealthy, well-connected, powerful and often white while disenfranchising already marginalized people, you know, communities of color, lower income folks, LGBTQIA folks, people with disabilities, those who don't have that power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And often, you know, we overhear or defund the police of people or reimagine or reform uh, of folks. Uh, but also at the same time, we are screaming fund the white collar police because a lot of that money and a lot of those resources went away after the 9-11 attacks, when all the focus and all that money went and resources went to counterterrorism. And, and, you know, we've seen kind of a, and this is more on the federal level, sort of a rush to, to bring a lot of these white collar criminals to justice in the past couple of weeks, a lot of indictments of money laundering and fraud and FARA violations and things like that. Uh, but bring it down to a local level for us. How does that impact uh, you know, a district attorney's office? Well, I mean, for so long, we have seen billions of dollars of our state budgets here in New York, you know, billions of dollars of New York state budgets that have been allocated to policing, surveillance, and punishment, uh, instead of towards fostering equitable and healthy and safe communities. And we have criminalized addiction, mental health issues, and poverty. And yet, mass incarceration doesn't provide the public safety we want, and it never will. Our criminal legal system should be focused on perpetrators who do real harm. And so we need to reallocate funds that support people and services in marginalized communities. It can be put into services for mental health, homelessness. We can fund schools, hospitals, housing, food in communities, you know, things that would actually keep us safe. But we also have to focus on those who are perpetrating real harm. So when you talk about, you know, white collar crime or theft of a backpack, I mean, I've had clients arrested and jailed for stealing a pint of ice cream or a Snickers bar from a CVS. And yet there are people out there who are committing wage theft to the tune of millions of dollars. And who are they stealing from? Oh, they're stealing from the same people who end up being my clients, those who, are, who don't have the power to fight back against their powerful employer. And 
those people are not being held accountable, certainly not by our criminal legal system. Every once in a while, oh, they get caught, they have to pay a fine. But there, there's no real accountability um, for those who, who have power. Mm. Agreed. And something I wanted to bring up with you, Manhattan District Attorney's Office has been thrown into the national spotlight uh, over the last year, year and a half, because of Cy Vance, who was the current district attorney in, in the Manhattan office, um, and and the Mazars case, right? This is the uh, trying to get the documents, subpoena the documents from Trump organization's accounting firm uh, for his personal and business taxes and trying to hold that business accountable for tax fraud and business fraud and, and, and those sorts of violations. And so with that huge spotlight on the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, how, how do you see yourself moving forward with that case if it's still ongoing uh, and, and you take over the office? Well, first of all, of course, uh, I would review the facts and the law and make sure that, that people who've committed crimes in New York City will be held accountable. You know, I think it would be irresponsible to state with certainty what I would do in any individual case without seeing all the facts. But I think it's quite clear, you know, based on what we know, that that those cases would certainly continue. But I think the the critical thing to point out is that we would not be in this mess had Cy Vance done his job earlier. You know, this is relevant insofar as like the far reaching consequences that a DA's actions have for communities and for the entire country. And, you know, Cy Vance made these decisions to not prosecute the, the whole Trump family. He dropped cases back in 2012 with regards to, you know, Trump Soho. And he should not now certainly get credit for making another politically motivated decision to try to position himself as someone who is holding Trump accountable when his failure to hold rich and powerful people accountable is a big reason why we are in this mess. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the concern about the Manhattan District Attorney's Office comes from some uh, crimes that were being investigated, fraudulent real estate crimes by the Trump children uh, back in the day that were um, dropped. Those cases were dropped. And so there was there was a lot of questions surrounding that. And there seems to be a little bit of distrust uh, in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office currently. And so how do you repair? I mean, this is something we're going to have to ask ourselves on a national basis, too, with our main Department of Justice. How do we repair uh, locally in, in your office going forward the trust, the community trust at, in that District Attorney's Office? It's a hard question because I think the, you know, Cy Vance has really served to undermine the integrity and the trust in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And I think that is due to, you know, his complicity or his lack of action when it comes to those who are wealthy and powerful and his failure to hold them accountable. Um, so yes, the Trump Soho case is, is one that comes to mind. He argued for leniency for Jeffrey Epstein. He failed to prosecute Harvey Weinstein for six years, despite having recorded evidence of crimes that, that Weinstein had committed. And I think another really big one that we have to talk about is his failure to hold the police accountable. And this is you know, we're seeing all this police brutality, you know, the assaults and the physical violence in the streets, but he's also failed them to hold them accountable for perjury in the courthouse, for falsifying documents, for false arrests. And as a public defender for over a decade, this is, these are all types of police misconduct I saw with stunning regularity. Mm -hmm. And the, the DA's office, even when I came to them with them, you know, just, uh, 
failed to, to do anything to hold them accountable. And I think that this chronic misconduct on the part of the police erodes our public trust in them and in the DA's office and harms our communities. Mm. It's hard to build back that trust, um, but uh, we have faith in you. <laughs> when, um, uh, before, uh, I, I want to discuss when the election is and how people can help. But before we get to that, I wanted to just ask you a, a larger federal um, Department of Justice question. It's come out today that Doug Jones is the lead contender for attorney general. And I was wondering what your top line thoughts were on, on if, if, if that is, in fact, Biden's choice. Uh I saw that this morning as well, and I breathed like a real sigh of relief. I think Doug Jones is someone who uh, is a has a fantastic record when it comes to issues related to race and civil rights. Um, I think he is, you know, he prosecuted former KKK members. He's uh, really been part of galvanizing the civil rights movement, and uh, I think. It certainly would be very, he, of all the people who've been mentioned for a potential AG nomination, he's certainly, certainly far and away the best. So I would be really happy to hear that. Mm. Yeah, he does have an incredible record of of going after white nationalists um, and domestic terrorists, uh, which is, I think, uh, an incredible problem uh, in our country right now, especially with the rhetoric coming from the right. I had Frank Fogluzzi on yesterday who wrote a piece talking about how it's not coming from lone wolf, radicalized people anymore. It's coming from people with JDs and people in suits and congressmen and governors and and the violence that is um, ensuing, for example, what's going on outside of Jocelyn Benson's home, the Secretary of State in Michigan, or what happened to Rebecca Jones, the, the Florida Board of Health person with that invasion into her home, gun, guns drawn with her kids in the house, uh, or the plotting, uh, attempted kidnapping and execution of Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I think it's so important that we do have somebody with a history of going after domestic terrorists. So I think I, I agree with you on that. So tell us when tell us when uh, the election is and how people can get involved to help support your candidacy. So the election is June 22nd of 2021. It's a Democratic primary because in Manhattan we elect Democrats. But what I tell people is that not all Democrats are created equal because this really matters. And just because someone identifies as a Democrat doesn't mean they share your values. I don't think Cy Vance and I are the same at all. Uh, and we need all the help we can get. This is going to be an extremely expensive election, as opposed to if you want to donate to a federal candidate where the maximum donation in the primary is $2,800. In our race, the maximum donation is $35,000 per individual donor, which is absolutely wild. We should be getting big money out of politics. And this is just another way in which they maintain the status quo. The system is not broken. The system is working as designed Mm -hmm. because this is to keep people like me, who've spent their career as public defenders instead of building up millions or billions of dollars. You know, I I have people supporting the campaign from all over. And the next Manhattan district attorney will have nationwide reverberations. This choice matters across the country. And so I need everyone to chip in whatever they can, a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars, whatever they can go to elizaorlins.com. E-L-I-Z-A-O-R-L-I-N-S and donate if you can. Uh, would be so grateful. We really, we need the support. And I'm so proud that we're that we're building this people-powered grassroots movement. But we are up against big money, very powerful people who can call 10 friends and raise $350,000 in an afternoon. 
you know, we raised $330,000 in our first filing from 3,500 donations. So we have thousands of people supporting our campaign, which I'm like so beyond proud of. And I think for some people, the $5 that they give a month means more to them than the $35,000 someone gives to one of my opponents. And, and so it, every dollar matters so much and means so much to me. And I take the, the responsibility so seriously. And I'm really grateful for the support. Yeah. Small dollar donors support a cause. Big dollar donors are buying buying positions uh, to keep maintain that status quo. Like you said, it's not broken. It's working as designed. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Um, I look forward to, to following this race and supporting your candidacy. And I hope you come back uh, and talk to us in the meantime about how it's going and and we can do another push to get people to to volunteer and and contribute to, to I definitely cause. will that would be amazing and we definitely will need volunteers and we'll be doing text banking and phone banking and we'll need everyone's help with that as well so sign up get involved so grateful thank you thank you thank you thanks for having me yeah absolutely it's been an honor to meet you everybody stick around we'll be right back after this message Hey everybody, it's AG, and this segment of Daily Beans is brought to you by BetterHelp. They provide professional counseling to help you navigate life's challenges. We all face difficulties, and there's stress and anxiety right now, especially right now, but the important thing to remember is you don't have to face these challenges alone. So if you're struggling with anything that's preventing you from living your best life, I recommend BetterHelp. It's not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's actual licensed professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours. You know, I've had my own stuff with PTSD, and I know how important it is to seek help. It's so much better than facing it alone. It's You need to check this out because their services are available for clients worldwide. They have a broad range of experts in their counselor network, a lot of which might not be locally available in your area. And the best thing about BetterHelp is you can log into your account anytime from anywhere and send a message to your counselor and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches too, so they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So visit their website, read testimonials like this one from AS who says, I thought I was the one who had it all together until the pandemic, that is. Every emotion I spent ears bottling up came flooding out and Ty has helped me through it all. I felt she related to me and hope helped me understand my feelings better. She's awesome. So visit betterhelp.com slash daily beans. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P. And you can join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. A special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash daily beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm now joined by author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Her, and her new book out November 10th called Loved and Wanted, a memoir of choice, children, and womanhood. Please welcome Krista Paravani. Krista, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. It's absolutely incredible. It came out November 10th, and it's about so many important things, motherhood, marriage, finances, working especially as a mother in the environment, but more than anything else, it's about healthcare and choice. And I was hoping you could tell us sort of the premise of the book and what prompted you to write it. Well, um, the, the book is about a period of time in my life where my family, um, we made the decision to move um, from Los Angeles to West Virginia, where I got a job teaching um, creative writing in a graduate program. And um, my husband had been working in the television industry as a writer, and we were just not making it. So we decided to scale down take the risk, move to West Virginia, which seemed, you know, crazy to our friends. I'd grown up in New York. My husband grew up in California. And um, we had a small daughter who was about three years old when we moved. And um, the, bo the book 
covers that period of time in my life. But it's a book about the fact that once I got to West Virginia, I had um, had another daughter. We had uh, a second daughter, Iris. And then quite by surprise, I found out that I was pregnant only a year after having my daughter, Iris. There was five years between my two daughters. Mm. Um, it was not easy for me to get pregnant a second time. And so to be pregnant a third time was just at 40 years old was shocking. I'd had a history of ectopic pregnancies. Um, you know, I just thought it was that, that period of my life was over. Um, but I was also the sole earner in our house. And, um, at that point, and, um, we didn't have enough money for a third child. We could not afford the daycare and there were very few options in the town we lived in which is not an uncommon thing in the united states but the premise of the book really is about the fact that i sought an abortion um during my third pregnancy and was declined my doctor told me that he did not know how to help me i went to my OBGYN in west virginia and then i um was um recommended to a physician who told me she would prescribe RU486 to me, but only in secret. And aside from that, there was um, one clinic in our state, uh, one healthcare clinic for women, and it was four hours away. Now, to clarify, this was recently because you don't look <laughs> much older, older than 40. So this wasn't the 60s. We're not talking no, about this is right now. And, you know, the book is that, you know, the book, the reason I wrote this book was I had an awakening, which was I realized that women's health care, I knew it, of course, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a reader, I, I'm, I'm a professor, but women's health care is in peril in the United States. And there was one health care clinic for women in the state of West Virginia, when I was pregnant with my son Keats, I, I went on to have a third child. Um, and uh, I discovered that that is not a rare thing. Places like New York and California have um, the most options for women in the country. And aside from that, and even then, the numbers are dwindling. There's there are all sorts of laws that that are uh, that have been passed that you know require women to uh, have a waiting period or to be instructed about all the bad things that can happen to you if you choose to terminate a pregnancy. And doctors are losing admitting privileges. It just um, the war against women's health care in this country started many years ago, and it's really ramped up. And um, I was caught in the middle of that. And um, I was unable to terminate that pregnancy because of the fact that there were too many barriers in the way. Hmm. And this book is about the consequences of that in my life and um, something that happened to my son as a result of that. Mm. We'll get into that in a second. I'm interested in that. I just... I'm I'm so shocked by because I live in my California bubble and you you New York and then California and your husband Los Angeles so it just seemed like hey this is something that we have access to and you're right with the previous Supreme Court Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and we had a more balanced Supreme Court uh, no one could get Roe overturned so they were making these laws that would end up in lawsuits that would go up to the Supreme Court. For for example, you mentioned a couple of them, and I remember specifically one in a state where you had to have an invasive procedure in order uh, to do that. They had to hear, uh, you had to listen to the heartbeat, or you have to have a funeral, like just all of these laws to, to sort of eat away at this. And I'm I'm interested to know now, with the balance of the Supreme Court as it is, with the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh 
and and Gorsuch, and now we've got this kind of six-three uh, Supreme Court with a, a a wavering, teetering Chief Justice John Roberts. How you think? You know, we we've you've run into these barriers. How that's even going to to become? how it's going to have a more of a negative impact on women's choice with this new balance of the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I think that we might see Roe overturned in our lifetime. I don't know. I, I do know that um, these laws are not going away. They're just not. They, they are becoming more extreme. And there are already states that have positioned themselves to be able to, you know, lobby to have um, abortion banned. In, the, in their state since Biden has been elected. And I do, you know, I think that what we need to do is we need to be educated about what goes on between, um, you know, ourselves and our physicians and understand what our options are around those barriers that are just set. I think maybe when my daughters are, are grown, my one, my daughter's one is four and the other is nine. I, you know, perhaps we will have subverted these, these laws coming in, but I don't, in the, in, in the next decade, I just, I just think it's going to get worse. I don't, I don't think that we're on a track to overturn this. It's not, you know, a, a lot of the country doesn't want it. A lot of the country does not believe in a woman's right to choose. And that's just something that I've come to understand. Um, you know, and so I wrote this book because, uh, you know, it's a book that delivers itself on a taboo. You know, I'm, I'm saying that I, I, you know, I have a much loved child that I wanted to terminate uh, the pregnancy for, but I do believe that we can both have uh, a discussion about wanting reasonable access to reproductive health care and love and want our children. Um, that's just a fact. And the majority of women who choose to terminate a pregnancy, most of them are already mothers. And we're doing this, you know, the majority of women are making this choice because not because they're callous and godless, it's because they can't afford to have another child. And so I think, you know, it, you know, in, in, in the face of what's going on politically here, we need to look at the rights that we are giving mothers and think about ways in which we can promote mothers in the workplace to provide parental leave, to do the things that make it easier for women to be able to choose to feel okay with expanding their families if we're not going to give them access to reproductive health care. Mm. And it is stunning, the, the difference. Um, I mean, currently in this political environment, we have people who are refusing to wear a mask um, saying that their body is their choice and keep your government hands off of my my body, while also in the voting booth choosing candidates, sometimes solely based on the fact that they're anti-choice candidates. It's it's stunning. It's stunning, but not surprising. <laughs> you know? So many things can be said about this administration and, and the far right in that, that that encapsulates, you know, not surprised, shocked, still not surprised. Um, now, you had mentioned a moment ago that this impacted your son in a way. Can you talk about uh, that for a little bit? Yeah, my son was born um, with um, health complications. Uh, he had a lip and a tongue tie that uh, he, he was not able to nurse at all. And um, he had a broken collarbone. But I didn't know that at the time um, he was born. He was failing. He was incredibly jaundiced. 
unable to eat, unable to move one of his arms. And none of the doctors in the hospital were able to recognize this. And I, I felt like I was, you know, I was saying there's something wrong with this baby. I have two babies. This is not the way it's been, but nobody would listen to me. It made me feel, you know, hysterical. Uh, on the other hand, you know, like the nine months before also did because, you know, being told that you cannot choose for yourself is a maddening experience. Um, but, um, what I discovered was this, and my son is fine now, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a hair raising two months where I, you know, we, we wound up leaving the state of West Virginia and going back to California because my husband had temporary work there. Um, and I started doing the research and I realized that um, it was a conversation that wasn't being had a lot. I hadn't actually heard it, um, but that states that curtail reproductive freedom for women have the highest rates of infant, infant and child mortality in the country, state by state. And I, you know, I became obsessed with it. And I thought, why is this, you know, and it's, it's obvious, the connection is obvious. It's because when you reduce uh, funding for women's health care, you automatically reduce funding for children's health care, because you cannot separate those two bodies. And I thought, I have to write this book because it's my responsibility to have this discussion with the public because this is this is about not just my agency but my my children's ability to thrive in this country and as a mother I you know it, it seems like a strange thing to write a book about reproductive health care for your children but in fact that's exactly what I did <laughs> yeah it's and you exactly you cannot separate those two things out it's yeah. And now I have a qu I have a question for you. When you were in uh, West Virginia running up against these walls and these barriers, did, had it had you thought about traveling? Um, and because and I think that there's, uh, if not already, uh, soon to be a, a, an industry. Yeah, there already is an industry. And there, there are there are groups that are helping women across state lines to find access to health care. Um, the, the issue that I had was and, and I will say, you know, it was personal because of the fact that it was just what was going on in my life. But I imagine that many, many women also have barriers like this, but my husband's father had just died and we'd missed time. I'd missed time from work to attend funerals and memorial services. And a very close member of my family had just died as well. So I had missed two weeks of work already by the time I found out I was pregnant. To travel, first of all, is incredibly expensive. I did not have anyone to stay with my children. I, you know, I didn't, have someone to call up and say, hey, can you drive me to a clinic across state lines? Um, and I would have had to ask for two weeks off of work. And I thought, what am I going to do? Tell my boss I need to have two weeks of work off to have an abortion. Um, we don't talk about that at work, but we should. Mm. Um, I didn't feel like I could ask. My job would have been on the line. It was the only job we had. So that's what happened. And by the time my semester ended, I was, you know, well into my second trimester. And that would have been a whole different set of questions in terms of, you know, what it meant to terminate at that point. Yeah. And that sort of goes to the heart of another set of questions that, you know, th the means, right? Because uh, most women who make these choices or, or mothers who make these choices, I should say, uh, it's because of affordability or capability or ability. And, and so, I mean, if you, if, you know, not everyone can just be like, well, I'm going to take two weeks off work, not tell them why, hopefully my job will be waiting for me and travel for a couple of weeks for this healthcare. 
Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm laughing about it now, but at the time I was Ugh. panicked, you know, and I was going through all of the days that I was going to miss and what I could say and how many dollars it would take. And if I flew, would it be faster? You know, there was just, I went through the options. They were not available to me. And look, this is the other thing. When you're facing this kind of um, message, which is what you want is shameful because that's what it is. If you, if you, if you have to jump through that many hoops to adequately, adequately advocate for your healthcare, it instills a shame in you. And it stops you from being able to trust that you are able to do anything. It's exactly what they intended. And it worked, it worked on me like a charm. And that's why I'm, I'm so grateful that you've written this book. It's so important that we normalize these conversations, lift the stigma of women's health care, which is what this is, uh, and choice, and, and how you weave in all of the other aspects of, of things that have to be considered. So many people, I think, approach this as just a black and white choice, but the nuance and the considerations and the variables are so there's just a multitude of them uh, that have to be considered. And that's why I'm so, I'm grateful that you've, that you've written this out and, and shared your story. It's very, very brave to do, uh, especially like you're talking in this environment and the environment that we have politically in this country. So I just want to let you know, I appreciate you writing this book and can you please tell people where they can, where they can find it and where they can find you. You can buy Loved and Wanted anywhere books are sold, um, independent bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold, you can get it. Um, and you can find me on Twitter or Facebook. All right. Well, it's called Loved and Wanted, A Memoir of Choice, Children and Womanhood. Thank you so much, Krista Paravani. I appreciate you spending time with me today. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation. Trust me, I know. Let's be honest. Most don't taste very good, and they don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. And this Helping of Daily Beans is brought to you by Monk Pack. They have cracked the code when it comes to making snacks that taste amazing but have close to no sugar. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars. They contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're the perfect snack. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle. And, you know, if you want to eat better, cut back on sugar and carbs, and you don't want to sacrifice taste, these are awesome. I've been trying to eat better, but I get tripped up by snacks. I like snacks. And since I've been having the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars, it's really helped. They have a perfect balance of sweet and salty and crunchy. Uh, They have the whole nut and seeds, but they manage to stay soft and chewy. And they come in delicious flavors like pecan almond, sea salt dark chocolate, and peanut butter dark chocolate. My favorite right now is the peanut butter dark chocolate because... Well, it's peanut butter and dark chocolate. It's delicious. And since they're packed with protein, they're filling. So they're satisfying. You get sated. And they're the perfect, you know, quick snack to indulge your sweet tooth without any guilt. And in addition to being keto-friendly, they're gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO. No soy, no trans fats, no sugar alcohols, and no artificial colors. So enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars while working, running errands, on a bike ride, after a workout. Try it for yourself. You'll see. We have a special deal for listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com. And entering our code Daily Beans at checkout. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M U N K P A C K dot com and select any product. Then enter code Daily Beans at checkout and you'll get 20% off your purchase. Monkpack, good food you can count on. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way.
Dana, I'm looking forward to good news and confessions and corrections today. It, it's been a long news day. <laughs> it has indeed. I always look forward to this part, though. I just love learning so much about your listeners. It's a big part of it. I should say our listeners. See how I'm just like your listeners. They don't listen to me. The, the just the listeners. listeners. Yes, the the, the, the Illuminati. All of yous. Because no one belongs to anyone here. That's right. I'm my own person most of the time. <laughs> I just gotta be me. Jazz hands. Okay. First up, I'm going to read the first two here because the first one is, is pretty short and I was expecting this after <laughs> it happened to Biden. So I'm in good company. Correction from a few listeners. Attorney General Javier Becerra's name is pronounced with a soft C, like sincerely and nice, not Becerra. Uh, Joe Biden took a lot of flack from the news today because that's the only thing that they can get Joe Biden on. He, he mispronounced it as well. Um, but, you know, I mean... Move on, Grey Poupon. Ooh, that's my new T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. I'm writing it down. No, you Great. are. You're actually going to get printed right now. Do you hear the printing press start up, everyone? Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> Leave Biden alone. Move on, Grey Poupon. All right, next up from Anna Marie, pronouns she and her. Greetings, beans, queens, from your neighbor to the north in Oregon. As I was listening to the Minnesota Pride episode, that part about the wonderful work Guy Fieri is doing to support tipped restaurant workers who don't qualify for unemployment reminded me of when Herman Cain died of COVID a few months ago. Was it really that short time ago? I learned that Cain represented the restaurant lobby in D.C. and worked to get that 213 an hour pay rate that I earned while I was waiting tables when I was in college in Illinois in the 90s. I'm not superstitious. I have no problem whatsoever speaking ill of the dead. So let me just say, as I have many times now, fuck that guy. (laughs) Anyway, having been a restaurant worker myself who would not have qualified for unemployment in the time of COVID, I have such a feeling of love in my heart to hear about Guy Fieri's care for folks in the restaurant industry. If we didn't know before, we all know now how important it is to fight for a fair living minimum wage in every state. The other thing I wanted to say, and please delete this if it's not the right place to say it, is that my husband and I started watching a series on Netflix called Raising Dion. When I tell you it is good, I cannot emphasize just how good it is. It should be watched. Thank you for giving us this day our daily beans. Please enjoy these pod pet pics of our two kitties, Sirius Black, indoor-outdoor, and Beastie Ajax, indoor-only, who eagerly awaits for Sirius to come home from outside each day so they can cuddle whenever they are together. (gasps) I'm only giggling because I think that says his bestie Ajax, but Beastie is probably also appropriate. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) bestie (laughs) beastie oh my goodness you know i want to say this just because we're talking about tipped workers a lot of people are like you know do you tip on to go food and listen people we're in the middle of a pandemic if you have the money to eat out i would like and this is me talking as someone who was a bartender for 11 years if you're going to get takeout especially during the pandemic tip as if you were sitting in the restaurant please Mm. Make sure you take care of, these are still in a sense, frontline workers. It's not the same as the medical and the nurses and the doctors that are treating COVID patients, but these people don't have a choice to stay home safe and sound. So please take care of them. That's all. That's all I ask. hundred percent. And I do want to say though, I think the reason that I said beastie is because one of my favorite poems is to a mouse, um, turn, uh, on turning up, uh, turning her up in her nest with a plow in November 1785. It's a Scot it's a Scottish poem written by Robert Burns and it just starts mm-hmm. with We sleek it cowering timorous beastie oh what a panic's in thy breastie. 
And so I always like the term beastie. That's probably why I thought even that was if, it. Even if that was just an excuse, I think you get points for the story and the accent. Oh, thank you. I'm terrible at that accent. But look yes. at the fur coming out of the ears of the beastie. <laughs> no. So cute. Oh, they hug. Oh, There's hugs. Okay. I mean, really, these cats are beautiful and adorable. Next good news we have is coming from Kelsey, pronoun she and her. I spent much of my time stuck at home trying to uh, keep myself busy by jumping between different hobbies. I started knitting several years ago and love learning new techniques with every project. However, I am notorious for getting bored with a project if it's too long and never finished. This is why I was never brave enough to make a sweater. It just seems so daunting. Well, I did it. Mm. I finished my first ever knitted sweater and it turned out perfect. I included a picture of the sweater for all of you, as well as photos of my pod pets. Isabella is the cat and the dog is Sasha. Love you guys. Keep up the amazing work and great energy. You bring my husband and I much joy and laughter every week. This it was a really soft, lovely sweater. That's a badass sweater. I love that cat. It looks like that cartoon cat. Mm, it looks like my boobs. The cat is named Boobs. Oh, I was like, um, a G? <laughs> <laughs> my breasts, okay. my, my breasties look like kitties. You didn't know that? They, my breasties cool. look like beasties. Oh, my God. Oh, look at, oh, oh, the dog. Look at that pose. Ta-da. Look at Sasha. I know. Oh, my gosh. Okay, next up, Emily. In all caps, story. koala in a Christmas tree. I'm an Australian living in Florida, and I love having your insight to make some sense of U.S. politics. Over there, it's scandalous when a politician fails to declare a bottle of wine he or she has been gifted or not to disclose an intimate relationship with another politician, so it's a bit of a different scene. (laughs) I'd love to help with the koala in a Christmas tree mentioned on Tuesday's show. The tree was an artificial tree, and the koala came into their house after the tree was up and decorated. (laughs) It's far less common to cut down your own tree there than in the u.s and we would usually buy real trees from local stores but you're right that would be nearly impossible to cut down and bring home a tree with a koala and somehow not notice it thank you (laughs) when the wildlife rescue service was called to come and relocate the koala they thought it was a prank call and apparently it took them hours to get the koala out it's summer for christmas there so maybe it was just hot also please don't call them koala bears they're marsupials and so they're called koalas I think that was you. I th- I've I try. I, I'm always cognizant of that, but I always mess it up sometimes. That was rude. I think that was you. <laughs> I do. I, I do. I think it was you. You know what it probably was. And I actually saw this correction the other day, <laughs> and about an article. And I know that they're not bears. And so I actually very much appreciate the correction again, Emily. Thank you. I'm Koalas. working on it. I'm working on it. Uh, yes. It could have been me too, but I'm working on it. I wish I had a pet to uh, to attach a picture of, and it would be the first thing I do when I move back home. But probably not a koala. Wink. Definitely not a koala bear. Yes, because they are not real people. They're not bears. Oh my gosh, though, the claws on those things. Anyway, okay. <laughs> it reminds me of the Greg Giraldo bit. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm not going to say any of it Oh, here. you're not going to tell us about it. Okay. I will get a million emails, but definitely look up Greg Giraldo koala. Okay, we will. We're going to move on to a good news story that you're not going to get a million emails for. This is from Gerald, pronounce he and him. My beloved beanie babes, this is Gerald, husband of Gretel. I'm writing with news that is too good not to share. For background, my parents traditionally give handmade gifts to all the kids and grandkids. But this year, my mom just wasn't going to be up for the task. So I partnered with her from across the country to produce gifts this year. 
and help keep her mind off the COVID woes. Our collaborative gift is personalized avatars for each family member. She sketched the initial designs and I digitally, I digitized them and 3D printed them onto cool coins that I shipped out to each family home. Why I'm telling you, your listeners are awesome. Okay, but unbeknownst to my mother, I printed an entire second set that I sent her with instructions to open as soon as it arrived. Now she will have her whole family with her this holiday season, despite the social distancing. For my pet tax, here's a picture of our tortoise shell kitty, Meow Meow. 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 With a perfectly formed snowflake that fell on her (gasps) cheek. It's a tortoise shell kitty named Meemaw. These coins are really cool, too. That's a beautiful cat. Yeah, those coins are awesome. Oh, my goodness. (gasps) Look at that snowflake. I know. Look at it. Is that real? Looks amazing. Uh, Next up. Maria. uh, Pronoun she. Hello, outstanding humans. I want to share with you something completely freaking magical that happened last night on the heels of the beautiful conversation of the show you recently had regarding pronouns and the incredible story submitted by a listener just yesterday. I had an experience with my family that is still making me shed some happy tears. I'm in a group text with two of my brothers and four of their friends who are really like brothers as well. It began as a football forum where my dyed-in-the-wool Bears fans brothers and I converted packer a converted packers fan would generally just give each other copious amounts of shit during games <laughs> i was raised as a bears fan so my defection in their eyes is a deep deep betrayal yes it is <laughs> by the way maria but they still love their little sister this mudslinging during games deserves its own blog however since covid since we haven't been able to see each other in seven months the texts haven't taken on uh, have taken on a more diverse range all of these men are wildly smart lightning fast on the wit front and albeit shameless on the trash talking incredibly compassionate Last night, one brother bought up, brought up Bob Dylan recently selling his catalog for a hefty sum, and another brother mentioned that he had named his eldest son after the artist. Uh, he then went on to let us all know <clears throat> that he hasn't been allowed to talk about it until now, until now, but his son is transgender. He let us know that she is now living as her true self, and he and his wife are supporting her completely. And then the outpouring of love from these nacho-eating, beer-drinking Bears fans was so overwhelming and so immediate. I just stood in my kitchen as text after text of love and kind words popped up with tears in my eyes. I threw in my love as well and truly felt guided by what I had the privilege uh, to learn from you, A.G. and Dana, and the listener Marissa, who shared her story. Sometimes I'm crying right now, just know, so you know. <laughs> sometimes the universe has beautiful timing, and sometimes beauty comes from exceptionally unexpected places. Okay, I'm not crying again or anything. Love you both so much. Your words on all topics mean the world to me and so many. Stay safe and be well. Love, 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 Maria. I'm including, as my pet pod tax, pictures of Atticus and Scout. Oh, wonderful names. Kill a Mockingbird. Our seven-year-old Pibbles, as well as a pic of the wee lass napping on Scout after a long day of remote learning. We affectionately refer to the doggos as the bunny sharks. That's a nickname our daughter came up with for them when she was seven, based on their softness and muscly movements. Cute. Oh, oh, God, these bitties. <gasps> Look at the puppy with the... Mm. Oh, they're so cute. My goodness. You know, I that story got me. I, I, um, I realize, even as open and accepting as I think I am, I still have these preconceived ideas of how certain people are going to respond and behave. And then I act surprised when they don't respond and behave the way they I think they're going to. And somehow I think that's a testament to them. And actually what it is, is it's actually me it says way more about me 
and like my, I, you know, and, and my, my inner prejudices that I don't think I have in, in, it's usually against white people, which isn't even fair, but I mean, as a white person, I'm always like, Oh God, white people do better. And then, you know, I, I see people from a certain demographic or they live in a certain place and I'm like, Oh, I don't expect them to do better. And then they do do better. And all of a sudden I'm impressed. And that just makes me an asshole. It makes me an asshole. It doesn't make them any better as a human being. It makes me an asshole. Anyway. I don't know if that makes sense. I hope there's someone out there listening that understood what I just said, because <laughs> it's just one of those things that I feel like I am, a, you know, a, a person that is, is super accepting and, and I don't make judgments. But then I, I realize that I still have some of those inside me when I look at people and I'm like, oh, I know how they voted. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's just a, an incredible story. And it must have been, you know, as overwhelming as it is for us and for Maria, just the parents, it must have been like just such a, no. a huge weight and just the outpouring of love is just absolutely wonderful. And I appreciate you sending in that story. And I also appreciate, I want to just give a shout out to you, the original question that came from an anonymous person that said they didn't get the pronoun thing. Thank yes. you for, for kicking out off that conversation. We are nothing but grateful to you for asking it and, um, just sending everybody all the love and until until tomorrow everybody please take care of yourselves take care of each other take care of your mental health and take care of the planet i've been ag and i've been dg and them's the beans the daily beans is executive produced and directed by ag and jordan coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie mazell and starburns industries our marketing manager executive assistant production and social media direction is amanda reader fact checking and research by ag jordan coburn and amanda reader our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>